Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to your people through it down the centuries. We pray that as we return to this story, two and a half thousand years old, that you would continue to speak to us from it. Help us to learn and to grow and to hear your voice to us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. Amen. So we've reached chapter 4 in Esther. We've had uh, chapter 1 where we came across uh, these first uh, characters in the story. Uh, um, come across uh, the king who spends uh, most of his time drinking uh, and his uh, queen uh, Vashti. And Vashti refused to do uh, as he wanted to do. So in this petulant way he threw her aside and decided to find another and in chapter 2, we get this rather uh, distasteful beauty contest that is uh, uh, played out in front of the king. And uh, Esther goes forward as one of uh, the competitors in this beauty contest, and she ultimately is chosen, and she becomes the queen. Then in chapter 3, which Richard was helping us to see last week, we come across the sort of third or, or fourth final sort of important figure uh, in the story, this chap called Haman. And Haman is a, a sort of official of the king, and Haman uh, is honoured by the king, and everybody pays him due honour. Everybody sort of bows and, and doffs and, and generally makes him uh, feel very respected, apart from Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't do that. Mordecai, who is Esther's older cousin. And Haman becomes more and more angry about it and decides in the end that not only is he going to try and uh, do away with Mordecai, but he's going to try and do away with the whole of Mordecai's people, all the Jews in this town of Susa and throughout the empire of the king, King Xerxes. So when we get to chapter 4, and we see Mordecai tearing his clothes and wearing sackcloth and ashes, it is with good reason. This is not just him sort of exaggerating or, or sort of wailing for effect. There is something very profound going on here. Haman has managed to get the king to agree that he, Haman, can, over, uh, can do away with Mordecai and the people of the Jews in Susa and throughout King Xerxes' empire. There is an annihilation on the cards. And Mordecai does what the people of God have always done. They tear their clothes, sackcloth and ashes, they mourn and they fast. But Mordecai is quite canny about it. He goes as far as he can. He goes as close as he can to the king's palace. Uh, it says, uh, he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly, but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. 
He is going to try to get Esther to realize what is happening. And it works. Esther realizes, Esther hears that there is this, uh, this sort of public uh, moment of lamentation. And uh, to f- the first thing she does actually is to send some clothes out. Um, and to say, here are some clothes, what are you doing? Um, but of course, he won't, um, he won't put them on. Um, and then she sends one of these, with these servants, one of these eunuchs out to him. And Mordecai explains, explains that he is under threat and explains that the whole people of the Jews are under threat. And then comes his request. He wants Esther to go and plead for the Jews. Um, He says he also gave him a copy of the text, so gives evidence of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in in Susa, to show Esther and explain to her, look, it's not just word of mouth. Look, here it is. Here is the evidence. And he told him, that's the eunuch, to instruct her instruct Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Do you remember up to this point, Mordecai has told Esther not to make clear who she is, to not reveal that she belongs to the people of the Jews. And now this is gone Go in and plead for your people. And she responds in the way that I think most people would respond. She says, I can't. I can't do this. She instructed him, this is the eunuch, to go back to Mordecai and say, all the king's officials... And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends his scepter to them. Look, I can't do that. I can't just turn up. I can't just walk in. And anyway, it's been 30 days since the king has asked me to go into his presence. I seem to be out of favour at the moment. This is more than my life's worth. I can't do this. There seems to be some cowardice here in Esther, but it is cowardice with good reason. She is the queen of a a king who already has a harem, who can choose another woman at any point, and who has shown that he will take bizarre decisions based on very little evidence, and most of the time, he is drunk. Her cowardice is based on very good evidence. I can't do this. But then comes Mordecai's answer, and it's a beautiful answer, it's a clever answer answer. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this message, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. 
but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. There's something very practical and something very theological going on here. Very practical. You are a Jew. If this edict goes out, if it actually rolls out, they're going to find out that you're a Jew. Why do you think you will be safe? Vashti wasn't. His first queen wasn't. Why do you think you will be safe? This is a risk to your life as well as to mine and to everyone else's. There is a very practical threat here and it is a threat, Esther, that faces you. But then there is also this theological conviction. And you know, we, as we've read this book and, and as we've heard several times, there is no reference to God in this story. But listen to these words if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It will come from somewhere else. There is underlying his words a conviction that the Jewish nation will be saved. Why? Because they have been chosen by God and they are safe in the palm of his hand. Yes, they will suffer. But ultimately, his faithfulness to them means that they will survive. If you don't do it, somebody else will. But who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. There is an enormous risk that she faces a risk of acting. If she acts, she may be killed. If she doesn't act, she may also be killed and miss out on being part of God's plan. She faces a really invidious choice. Do I act and risk my life? Do I try to save it? but may not, and then miss out on what God has in store for me. Maybe I am in this place at this moment for this purpose. And she decides to go for it. And it's not a cheap or thoughtless decision. The next few verses, which we didn't read, she asks Mordecai to go out and ask the Jewish people to, pa to fast for her, to put on their sackcloth and ashes, and to remember her. Again, the voice and the sound of God is all there in the background. Go and fast for me. Go and do the sackcloth and ashes. Go and do what? Pray that God has mercy on me. And she says, if I perish, I perish. You remember the words of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego before they get thrown into the fiery furnace. They say, we believe that God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your statue. Now we'll find out 
as the story continues to unfold, what happens next. But let's pause here and think about this young woman. She is about to take this tremendous risk because she appears to be able to see that she may be in this position because God has placed her there. And God has placed her there for such a time as this. And perhaps it is a reminder that wherever we are, maybe, maybe God has placed us into that position that we too play our part in what God is doing. Maybe you are where you are for such a time as this. In your family, in your school, in your workplace, in your leisure, in your street. Maybe you are there for such a time as this. And if you're anything like me, when you think about that, the first reaction is one of panic. You can't possibly want me to do this. You, you know how rubbish I am at taking opportunities. You do. Now, there's two things to say about that. Firstly, if we mess up, don't worry, because it will come from somewhere else. Okay? If you remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Okay? Don't go down a rabbit hole of guilt. All right? But, but, maybe you are where you are because God has placed you there for such a time as this. You are the one in that position. You are the one in that moment. And the Lord believes in you and in your capacity to use that moment for him. Can you imagine that enormous vote of confidence in you? I once heard a sermon here in church by, um, uh, by uh, Louise's dad, by David Alcock, and, and, and in his sermon he said, he said, there's no such thing as real Christians. He said, there's only us. That's one of those sentences you... Hang on, what do you mean there? There's no such thing as real Christians, there's only us. And he, he kind of explained it a bit. What he said was that he thought most of us think that we're just sort of bumping along the bottom, and somewhere else down the road or in sort of glamorous places in London or somewhere else, they're the real Christians and they're doing wonderfully and they're doing really well, okay? And they're great and we're just bumping along the bottom. And what he said was, that's nonsense. There's only us. We are the people of God in this place and in this moment. You, you are where you are for such a time as this. There may be risk, probably not in the sense that Esther faced it, but there may be risk. Risk of embarrassment or reputation, workplace jokes, ridicule or prejudice. But there will be a greater risk in not using the moment that God has given you. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, I find it really difficult to talk about Jesus. Esther doesn't talk about her faith. We'll see that in the story as it goes on. 
She doesn't talk about her faith. The plea that she gives is to stand up for those who are being oppressed or abused. She simply does what is right. She simply speaks for those who are being oppressed. She does what is right in that moment. So maybe for such a time as this is not, do I need to talk about Jesus? It's, can I do what is right for my friend, for my family, for my neighbor, for the environment, for the place in which I live? Can I do what is right in this moment? Because maybe, maybe you are the person who is in the right place at the right time for such a time as this. Don't get panicked full of guilt. Don't get all stressed and worried about it. But why not step into that wonderful sense that the Lord believes in you? The Lord believes that what you might do is of enormous consequence. We are still grieving for John, aren't we? Our lovely John and Anne dying two years ago. In some ways, I'm not sure St. Christopher's will ever quite get over the fact that they are not here. John often spoke about the fact that he was invited to St. Christopher's by a boy with learning difficulties. And John found his way to church and found his way to a place that gave him purpose and meaning and value and direction for the rest of his life. Maybe you are that person for somebody else for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Lord, give me eyes to see the moment when your word comes to me, asking me to speak or act for you. Help me to see that I may be there in that moment for such a time as this. Help me to be like Esther and speak out against injustice and for the good of your people. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.